good morning, everybody, uh, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where from the world you are operating from. Uh, my name is Salim Fakir, and I'm the executive director of the African Climate Foundation. It's a very new foundation based uh, in South Africa, but we operate across the African continent, focus on climate and resilient issues, and um, three areas of our focus is on uh, urban transitions, uh, agriculture and land use, and um, uh, uh, energy transitions. So it's a real pleasure for me to be able to moderate and chair uh, the session on ideas for confronting climate change today, which is co-organized by IFPRI and the Global Health 5050. Uh, I, I just want to say that uh, I'm a great fan of IFPRI. I have had long engagement with IFPRI, including a when I was young, I served as an intern, and I want to recognize the excellent work that IFRI is doing and the huge knowledge and expertise they have uh, that is a global uh, public good. So it's really uh, wonderful to be able to, 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 to just share this. But I want to uh, invite the audience um, uh, uh, just to say we would like to hear from you. To participate in the Q&A session, please uh, use the chat uh, and then follow uh, that will follow the presenter's remarks. So first we'll have the presenter speaking, all of them, and we'll go through the list uh, uh, very carefully with uh, uh, sort of a discussion at the end, uh, responding to that. And then if you can please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, or by using hashtag uh, ask if we on Twitter. Uh, with that, uh, given that we have a very tight uh, schedule, uh, the speakers have uh, also very um, short presentation. It's a bit of a speed dating exercise. I would like to kick off with um, the first speaker uh, and, and just give a bit, bit of introduction on Rui Benfica. Uh, earlier, he told me he's from Mozambique and really wonderful to, to get to know him. He's a senior research fellow at IFPRI. Uh, Rui is, a, uh, is involved in the environment and uh, production technology division at, at IFPRI. His research focuses on issues around the role of agricultural research and development on food systems, transformation, and rural development. I would like to invite him to speak and then uh, once he's done, we will not take Q&A at that point. We will go and uh, we'll, uh, immediately go to the next speaker and I'll introduce the next speaker. So Rui, if I can hand over to you, uh, real pleasure to have you come and speak. Thank you. Yeah, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, my topic on the, is on the research uh, for um, the future of food systems and the climate change. Um, the R&D environment is changing, but the challenges with productivity growth do indeed persist. Um, public R&D investment has been growing. It, in fact, it has doubled um, between 1981 and 2016. But uh, uh, on the other hand, the global private uh, spending on R&D has also uh, tripled between 1990 and 2014, particularly uh, dominated by high-income countries that uh, have dedicated about a quarter of this expenditure directly uh, targeted at the commodities or research areas that are relevant for low and middle income countries. But some other commodities that are nutritionally important, such as roots, tubers, beans, legumes, are relatively neglected. So uh, that means that there's some, still some space for a crucial role of the public sector research agencies 
particularly in the areas that are uh, where the incentives for private sector are actually low. Um, finally, um, you know, global agricultural productivity growth is not accelerating fast enough to uh, sustainably meet the needs of the 10 billion people uh, by 2050 uh, in face of current challenges. Um, next slide, please. Uh, there are two major current challenges for R&D in low and middle income countries. First, there are concerns of food systems transformation issues such as nutrition and diets, value chain efficiency and social inclusion. Second, uh, there is the need to adapt uh, to climate change and address environmental degradation. And um, in this context, uh, climate change is expected to be a major determinant um, of the quality and quantity of food to be produced and uh, on the ability to achieve equity in food systems. Um, responses to these challenges are still uh, limited, but they're actually promising. Uh, for instance, the levels of R&D investment for sustainable intensification are currently inadequate. Uh, in low and middle income countries, for example, only 7% of spending in agriculture innovation is targeted towards sustainable intensification, but the returns can be substantial. Um, overall, R&D investments um, on climate adaptation uh, can alleviate impacts on prices, cropland expansion, and future um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, solutions to address issues in the broader food systems beyond production still need attention that will likely come from a private sector um, and a combination of public-private investments. Um, next slide, please. Uh, the agricultural R&D uh, to confront climate change needs uh, an integrated and comprehensive multi-sector approach. Essentially, uh, R&D investments must increase, not just for farm productivity growth, but also for climate change mitigation adaptation and in technologies at different stages uh, in the food system, such as the processing, transportation, storage to reduce post-harvest losses, and in improving food quality for better nutrition and health. Uh, as returns to um, research at the farm level depend on the success of innovations in the supply chain, R&D investments for downstream technologies in the food systems uh, will need uh, a lot more attention uh, in the context of climate change and the development of the, um, of the uh, food uh, systems. Uh, most low and middle income countries will struggle to increase investments in the face of poor institution and infrastructure, uh, budget constraints, inefficiencies in R&D systems, limited supply of researchers, and increased demands. So this is basically a challenge that is in existence right now and gets exacerbated by the, the, the challenge of climate change and food systems, uh, systems uh, developments. Um, therefore, it will be necessary to determine feasible levels in the short run, medium and long run uh, of uh, R&D investments well targeted. Uh, it will be also important to redefine the role of donors uh, in order to be more strategic in targeting countries at different capacity levels and needs. Uh, it will be also necessary to strengthen the coordination of research and regional collaboration uh, to target issues of common relevance and deal with scale inefficiencies. Uh, it will also be critical to identify long-term investments with highest impact in future development of the research systems in sectors such as education, infrastructure, and also in uh, IT uh, and in communications. Uh, finally, I would like to highlight the fact that some uh, climate change related effects uh, have implications for the food system that remain largely unexplored. For example, uh, the effects of rising sea levels on transportation infrastructure, um, changes in design of storage facilities, uh, and the effects of regulatory policies on adaptive capacity of the food systems. So ultimately, R&D for addressing climate change in broader food systems need to factor in those, uh, those elements and also rely on the very likely uh, more important role of the private sector in this context. Thank you very much. 
thank you, uh, Rua. That was an uh, interesting presentation. We will come back to it later. And if I can uh, quickly uh, just introduce the next speaker uh, on the topic of transforming food systems through clean energy. Uh, it's Claudia Ringler. Uh, she's the Deputy Director, Environment and Production Technology Div Division. Claudia is, um, uh, uh, has been with the CGIR program, uh, also on water, land, and ecosystems. Her research focuses um, uh, on issues around water, energy, food systems, and relationship to ecosystems. Claudia is very involved with the nexus issues, as, as she told me earlier. So I would like to hand over to her. Uh, thank you, Claudia. Yeah, thank you very much for this kind introduction. And uh, also on the topic of why we do need to transform food systems through clean energy access. Next slide, please. So basically, uh, I first want to make the case why we need to do it and then uh, how we should be doing it. So there's really many reasons why we need to engage on this topic much more. Today, an estimated 600 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa are without electricity. And those who do have access really experience very unreliable access. This affects rural and total economic growth, but also rural livelihoods. Areas without clean energy access are also those that show the worst agricultural performance. And while I mentioned the statistic for Sub-Saharan Africa, the situation is really also bad, not as dire uh, as in Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's also bad in South Asia. So what are some examples of where, you know, where we do need rural energy access? And examples do include groundwater fed solar irrigation, but also the cooling of poultry houses. Beyond that, uh, better rural energy access supports larger food systems, for example, through improved and cleaner agro-processing, the cold storage of perishables such as vegetables, fruits, milks, and eggs. And that, of course, directly supports some of the action areas in the United, food and United Nations Food Systems Summit, uh, including also the goal of producing more nutritious food and climate resilience. Moreover, through reducing deforestation and forest degradation, clean rural energy access and use preserves biodiversity, which is concentrated in forests. And it also reduces the zoonotic disease risk through reducing interactions between wildlife and humans. This of course also supports the Convention of Biological Diversity. COP15 is actually going on this week. Finally, a shout out uh, of the importance of women's and girls' specific needs around uh, rural energy access. We know there's continued large scale collection of firewood that takes a lot of women's times as well as uh, health impacts from smoke. And so there's many other benefits, but these are really just a few. Next slide. So if this is such a great solution, why do we not see accelerated investment? So the key rural, a key rural challenge uh, for accelerating energy access in rural areas is the continued siloed development of energy, agriculture, and water systems. Energy actors do not coordinate with agri-food systems. They don't actually understand those systems. Similarly, there is limited interaction between, between energy actors and water system actors. So if we could make a difference here, I think we could accelerate access uh, for particularly rural, rural poor women and men. They're priced out of modern energy services. They often don't have these productive uses. So those linkages are missing and they need to be developed. 
As a result, as I already mentioned, they rely on firewood, crop residues, and cow dung for domestic cooking or diesel pumps and generators for other uh, agriculture uses, such as irrigation. So to address this, what can we do? I think we do need to generate more and better evidence on the multiple benefits of clean rural energy access, as well as on the cost of inaction. We need to identify more productive use locations that are attractive to the private energy sector, such as hubs for agro-processing or irrigation. We need to much better engage these siloed investors to jointly design and develop rural energy, ag, and water systems for multiple outcomes. And we need to really assess and identify milestones and indicators for them to follow to achieve joint impacts. We finally also need to strengthen women's agency in clean rural energy systems. And this photo here actually shows an example from the Orisa Tribal Women's Barefoot Solar and She Deers Association. Doesn't look like it, but that's what it is. And finally, we need to develop capacity on identifying and assisting cross-sectoral solutions using energy as an entry point. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claudia. And uh, I, I think what's uh, important is the, the value of access to energy. Uh, and particularly improving in, in, uh, production and also supporting um, a stronger, um, uh, uh, healthier food uh, systems, uh, etc. So I, I want to then uh, just move on to the uh, next speaker on engaging stakeholders, landscape management uh, for confronting climate change and uh, invite uh, Wei Zhang. Uh, who is a senior research fellow at the Environment Production Technology Division uh, with an agricultural and environmental economics background. She brings social science expertise to interdisciplinary research on the intersection between agriculture, development and environment, including governance of common pool resources, individual and collective behavior and choices in ecosystem service management. Uh, these days, she co-leads the development of a new CGIR initiative focusing on low emission food systems. Uh, uh, Wei, just before you go, I just want to remind the audience, uh, again, just we would like to hear from you. Uh, we would encourage you to participate in our Q&A session that follow uh, the presenter's remarks. Please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. And Wei, if I can then, uh, with that, uh, hand over to you, because we do want people to engage the excellent presentations, or, you know, even though they're short, but I'm sure they have lots of questions. So, Wei, please. Many thanks, Salim. Um, approaches to food system transformation that stress integrated thinking and governance at the system or landscape level can bring stakeholders together for more effective and equitable climate change responses. So in this upcoming Global Food Policy Report chapter, my co-authors, Ruth Maitendik, Hagar Aldidi, Ipri, and Pratiti Pridadashini from the Foundation for Ecological Security in India and I uh, will look at the importance of landscape management for confronting climate change and ways to engage stakeholders in landscape governance. Next, please. Many climate change action, many climate actions require landscape approach and coordination and collective actions. 
to identify the institutional arrangement relevant for climate change responses, including both mitigation and adaptation, it's useful to look at the spatial and time scales of each action or program. Uh, as this figure shows, um, the spatial scale helps to identify what types of institutions are required, both for policy development to set the enabling conditions and for actors to carry out the necessary activities. These can vary from the global to the national to the local um, or even individual level. Climate smart actions at individual level um, generally do not require much in the way of institutions for coordination, though coordination at higher levels may be needed. Moving up to the response options at the group or community level, such as community pond uh, or landscape restoration, landscape diversification, some form of coordination becomes necessary. At the local level, collective action institutions are often the most appropriate. Some state institutions may also be relevant, for example, to provide technical advice to a group of farmers constructing or operating the reservoir or incentivize other actors in the value chain, such as storage and processing. Moving further up on the spatial scale, local government or other state agencies become increasingly important for coordination, although collective action institutions may still be relevant. The time frame for actions also provides insight into the nature of institutional arrangement needed. The longer the time span between actions taken and their results is, the more difficult it will be to gain and maintain support and to monitor progress. So there are some implications of um, this framework. First, research has shown that collective action institutions are very important for technology transfer in agriculture and natural resource management um, among stakeholders and resource dependent communities. They also are important for spreading information and technologies practices for various climate change actions. Many mitigation technologies require collective action, for example, to facilitate information flows among community members. Second, for, policy, uh, for climate change policies to be sound development policies, the impact of um, actions on the poor needs to be examined. In many cases, customary property rights need to be recognized and made more secure if smallholders are to benefit. Adopting climate smart practices require land and water rights to guarantee a return on this investment. Secure property rights are also important for natural resource management practices like tree planting um, that involve long-term investment in land and promote sustainable use where returns may not be gained without secure um, tenure. Third, the need to consider the wide-ranging effects of climate change policies and progress uh, programs calls for the participation of various levels of governance in designing and choosing uh, climate response strategies. Experience shows that uh, um, programs that are developed in a top-down manner 
um, do not in, and do not engage local people in the design of rules and systems are unlikely to create viable institutions that operate at the local level in the long run. Additional, additionally, local policy responses are necessary to complement national policies that do not specify benefits or support for smallholders. Therefore, a range of central and local institutions, public and private, is there is needed, rather than focusing exclusively on any single type of institutions, policies need to develop harmonious multi-level governance arrangements. Uh, next, please. There is growing acknowledgement that conventional sector approach to addressing often interconnected social, environmental, economic, and political challenges are proving insufficient. An alternative is to focus on integrated solutions at landscape scales or landscape approaches. A system review of literature by Reed et al. 2016 suggests that despite barriers, a landscape approach has considerable potential to meet social and environmental objectives at the local scales while aiding national commitments to addressing ongoing global challenges. Five key aspects of an effective landscape approaches um, are highlighted by the study. Uh, evaluate progress metrics must be specific to the context, uh, establishing good governance, and evolving, evolve from Panacea solutions, acknowledging that a landscape approach is not universally applicable. Contextualization is fundamental to success. Uh, engagement of multiple stakeholders is essential. And finally, uh, we must embrace dynamic process. Um, the framework needs to uh, have a building mechanism to mitigate stochastic and unpredictable changes. To overcome some of the barriers to effective landscape approaches, there are some recommendations, for example, to uh, commit to implementation effort um, to, in order to support our understanding of how integrated landscape approaches work, go beyond um, the current labels or terminologies used, and accept there are many potential entry points to a landscape approach. We need to operate uh, across sectorally more in a more collaborative uh, fashion and, and um, implementers should engage stakeholders in full, open and inclusive negotiation processes. Again, monitoring is important and researchers must continue to develop and refine appropriate and cost-effective matrix. Next, please. Uh, Wei, uh, maybe if you could just summarize the, the next yeah. slide, if you don't mind, thanks. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of attention to multi-stakeholder platforms as key for integrated landscapes. Um, and, um, but landscapes, uh, but multi-stakeholder platforms are not Panacea uh, either. In many cases, key groups are not interested in engaging and uh, power inequalities don't disappear and can affect voice and participation. So it's very important to balance the role of government actors so that they provide legitimacy and enable follow-up action without controlling the progress. My final uh, slide, please. 
so just to highlight some policy priorities, uh, confronting climate change can't be done by government alone. Uh, we need landscape level approaches that involve uh, multiple stakeholders and communities. Policies alone are not enough either, uh, but they can help providing the enabling conditions for stakeholder engagement in landscape management, including addressing tenure security issues, um, devolution policies can encourage state agencies to engage with communities and private sector. And also there's a need to invest in multi-stakeholder multi platforms and capacity building. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Wei. Um, uh, we're going to proceed with the next speaker, uh, Jia Wuku, uh, if I can invite you, please. He's a senior research fellow at the Environment and Production Technology Development with agricultural uh, engineering background. Uh, and he has 20 years of experience uh, simulating crop yield responses to climate change and analyzing smallholder farmers' adaptation strategies. These days he's busy developing a new CGIR initiative focusing on the use of digital technologies to manage climate risk in food systems. And he will share some ideas that his team is developing with us today. So, Jiao, uh, uh, please. Thank you. Uh, oh, the Zoom is yours, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yes, uh, I'd like to introduce some new digital technologies that can be useful to manage climate risk uh, and confront climate change today. Uh, next slide, please. So yeah, first, why digital? Uh, digital technologies can address the key, uh, three key challenges of managing climate risk. Uh, first, the climate is changing rapidly. Uh, just this week, Climate Central reported that the number of days between billion-dollar climate disasters in the U.S. had been reduced to just 18 days in recent years compared to more than 80 days in the uh, 1980s. Digital technologies can expedite the process of data collection and analysis to react to climate risk in uh, a more timely manner. Second, climate impacts are localized everywhere and difficult to predict and plan against. A meta-analysis published this week on nature climate change said 85% of the global population has been already impacted by climate change related uh, climate disasters. Predictive analytics um, can help planning the best protective measures at the local level. Uh, finally, policymakers do not always have timely, reliable information to act upon. And here again, digital technologies can improve public information systems, allowing stakeholders to access the information quickly and monitor policy impact also uh, quite timely manner from the citizen. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so yeah, there are many exciting creative use cases in this space. Uh, here are some select examples. Uh, first, digital technologies are helping to collect and disseminate quality climate information, uh, gathering real-time data from sensors in the field, storage, transportation, market, uh, just throughout the food systems. Aggregating information also through crowdsourcing and analyzing satellite remote sensing data to monitor the landscape at scale. These data are used in advanced analytics to simulate different natural resource management scenarios, analyze causality between climate shocks and even security risk in society and economy, and continuously monitor the system status to only detect any anomalies in the food system. This information helps to improve decisions on the land use planning, climate smart investment targeting, 
optimizing food supply chains to nudge consumers for healthy diet while reducing food losses, providing digital financial services, and also in index-based insurance uh, helps farmers and small-scale producers to manage the risk and also facilitate the provision of carbon credits. Uh, yeah, next slide, please. So this all sounds good, uh, but then how do we scale up such digital solutions? Uh, first, not only uh, should the data be open, uh, but data also should be findable, interoperable, and reusable. Silos data can't really answer this complex question at the system level. Oftentimes, uh, this requires building trust in the digital ecosystem. Public-private partnership is essential since many of these digital solutions are developed in the private sector, which can benefit everyone. Uh, policy and regulatory frameworks are necessary to ensure the responsible collection and management of data. Investment in rural connectivity infrastructure should continue to make the technology accessible to the people who can really benefit the most. Uh, further, closing digital divide between gender, rural, urban, and age groups uh, should be clearly embedded in the government plans and digital strategy. At the same time, capacity building toward digital literacy and importantly, filtering misinformation also should be prioritized. Uh, lastly, digital technology in itself can't solve all these complex problems that climate change is causing. Uh, so we should leverage our collective expertise um, in, in the use of these, these, uh, these digital tools to make sure technologies do not cause unintended consequences like bias and black box predictions. Yeah, thanks, and I'll be happy to engage in Q&A session. Joe, thank you for sticking to time. That's excellent. Uh, we, uh, I'm not going to summarize at this point in time. I might raise uh, later on, but I, I do want to invite uh, Jamima uh, Njuki, uh, who uh, I've heard a lot about from uh, fellow friends. So I'm really pleased to meet you via Zoom, uh, Jamima. Uh, she's the director for Africa at IFPRI. Uh, with more than 20 years of experience in the agriculture sector in Africa and Asia, working on gender in, uh, equality and the empowerment of women. Her current research focuses on how to make food systems more equitable and gender transformative. And she leads the Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment Leader for the UN Food System Summit. But uh, Jamema, before you uh, respond to the various presentations. I just want to remind uh, the audience, please, if you would like to ask questions, uh, I've just uh, alerted you to the hashtag AskIFRI uh, on Twitter, uh, and there are other platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn, if you, if you can put your questions on that. Uh, I would like to then be able to orchestrate a set of questions with the rest of the uh, speakers. So, Jamema, can I give over to you? Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Samir, and, and so happy to be able to, at least if not summarize, um, give a few of my takeaways from uh, these excellent presentations. And what I find is that this, this conversation is, is really timely because we sort of in between the, the, the food system summit that happened um, last month and, and the COP26. So this conversation around um, climate, climate change, what some of the innovations are, the kinds of investments we need to make and the connections uh, with food systems is really, is really key. 
I want to talk around four, four key areas that, that are really hard throughout um, the presentations. Um, one is um, the, the urgency with which we need to address some of the climate challenges that we face today. Um, the second, the role of science and innovations and the importance of investing in science and innovation. And the third is really the multi-stakeholder nature of the actions we must take now. And fourth, how we ensure that there's equity in climate action. So I want to take each of these uh, very briefly in, in a minute or so. And I'll start with the urgency of the situation. And I was looking at the four presenters and comparing how calmly they are talking about these issues with, with what the IPC, the last IPCC report, um, report says, and maybe it's because they're researchers that they can talk about these issues quite, um, quite calmly. But I was reading the IPCC report you know, saying that some of the changes we are seeing now are actually unprecedented. Some of the shifts are actually irreversible. Um, you know, for example, the data that's showing that in, in 2019, the atmospheric CO2 concentrations were higher than at any time in at least 2 million years. Um, and and these, this is, this is quite, uh, quite profound, uh, you know, that the global surface temperature has increased faster since 1970 than it has in any other 50-year period over the last 2000 over the last 2000 years. So this actually makes the conversation we are having today um, so so timely because we need the kind of innovations, the kind of research, the kind of investments that we've been talking about today. If we are to even reverse some of the things that are reversible um, are reversible today. So that's the first point I wanted to, to underscore. Um, the second one is the role of science and, 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 in, and the investments in, um, in science, because I believe this can really be a, a game changer, both in addressing climate mitigation, but also adaptation. And I think we've heard this throughout the, um, the presentation, you know, we've had powerful innovations in the climate and water services, um, uh, you know, Claudia talking about uh, alternative um, energy and ensuring rural uh, investments in, in rural energy, um, but also investments in, in things like early warning systems using some of the digital tools that um, that Jawu has, has talked about. But in addition to this, not to forget that some of this action will also require changes in behavior. And, and whether these changes in behavior, are, for example, cutting food waste so that we can cut greenhouse gas uh, emissions, uh, changing dietary uh, patterns so that we see reductions in, in emissions and land use and, and reductions in water use in, uh, in agriculture, but also the dietary shifts that yield some benefits both in health and mortality risks as a result of, of some of the impacts of climate change. So we're gonna need a combination of these innovations and the use of some of these innovations to actually change behavior and, and change the way the way the world does, um, does things. Now, which brings me to the third point, these 
solutions that are going to require multi-stakeholder action and where he has really demonstrated to us the different it, it's gonna take all of us operating at different levels to address some uh, climate change and to address some of the changes and, and issues that we see um, we see now. And it's not just going to be government, it's going to be private sector, but also working very, very closely with local stakeholders and communities to ensure that what comes out of these processes is actually has utility uh, for them and that they can actually use it. It is appropriate. It fits within their um, their farming or food um, or food systems. Um, very clearly looking at what um, what uh, Claudia and 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 Jiao especially have been talking about in terms of energy and digital tools, seeing a very clear role. Um, for, for industry and how our governments can actually provide that enabling policy environment to, to, to support um, industry to actually provide some of these solutions and provide them at a scale that actually makes uh, makes a difference. But also reflecting on Rui's, uh, Rui's presentation on, on investments and how funders investing in R&D needs to actually be very targeted at the innovations that are gonna have an impact on climate change, but also that align with, the, and, and as someone like, like me sitting in, in Africa that actually is aligning with some of the priorities that the government have put in place in their national adaptation plans and their, and their NDC, um, NDC plans. And then lastly, to an issue that's dear to my heart is ensuring equity in, in climate action. And here I hear equity from different uh, perspectives. You know, investments by um, high income countries Two low, medium, low and medium income countries that actually have much less capacity to adapt. Um, and there have been some past commitments, the numbers thrown around like 100 billion US dollars by high income countries for climate adaptation. And these commitments need to come through for this to actually happen because we are seeing disproportionate impacts in developing countries um, from, uh, from climate change, but also making sure some of the innovations we're talking about are, are, are equitable. You know, if women are 50% less likely to be using the, the internet, um, how do we make sure that they actually have access to innovations that then require use of digital tools? We have to close some of those um, gender gaps for this, uh, for this to work. And to, to really conclude, I want to say um, uh, this year we are doing the, the biannual review for, for the CADAP, uh, the Malabo um, commitments. And what we are seeing is a lot of our countries have not met the targets for building resilience, both in terms of the budgets they are allocating, but also um, very important for us as a research organization and our partners in terms of the use uh, of climate resilience technologies whether for adaptation or for mitigation and so we still have a lot of work to do both to encourage the kind of policy and investment that's needed to make sure that they meet these targets but also working with other stakeholders on the ground to ensure that a lot of these innovations we're talking about actually reach those that need them uh, need them most um i'll hand it back to you uh,
Jamima, thank you very much. Uh, this is a very complex uh, multidisciplinary topic, uh, very diverse. And I think the four or five presentations we've had today just illustrates uh, not only the importance of the issue and that uh, our food systems and agricultural production systems have to adapt to new challenges uh, in, a, in a context of the African continent where um, uh, agricultural production needs uh, more support and uh, where farmers and producers and uh, the economy can generate a lot more value from the agricultural sector. So we've heard about the importance of the climate science, um, the need for uh, research and development uh, to drive innovation, uh, the importance of uh, energy uh, access, especially for the food system and for, uh, agricultural production, but more importantly for households to be able to uh, preserve food and to be able to do other things with energy, like uh, uh, perhaps uh, other types of uh, production and enterprises uh, and agricultural processing. Uh, there's new innovation within IFPRI itself around the use of tech, uh, digital technology. And I think the more important part uh, which uh, Wei Zhang has brought about is the importance of collective action uh, as part of resilience, institutional build, building. Uh, what I liked is the importance of transmission of information, knowledge, and adapt, adaption uh, of technology. The, the wonderful news is we got uh, loads of questions, and I'm going to field them uh, as systematically as possible. We've got very limited time, half an hour. Uh, uh, we've got Martha Brady from Global Health Consultant asking a question, how do you see the intersection of planetary health and socioeconomic progress, particularly for low middle income countries? And I just want to check, uh, maybe Rua, if you want to answer that, um, or maybe Wei Zhang as well. Um, uh, one of you can choose, um, but, uh, or even uh, uh, other uh, panelists, but we won't have a lot of time. So I, maybe Claudia, let's go for you. Unless Rui, you want to start? Rui, you want to start? You want to no, go ahead, please. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, just quickly, I mean, I think I've tried to mention that, um, I mean, clearly there are trade-offs. So if you're trying to improve nutrition and uh, reduce poverty um, in rural areas and obviously everywhere in the world, we will use more natural resources. So that affects planetary health, but there are, we don't like the term win-win solutions and panaceas, but what, for example, what I suggested in terms of clean rural energy access. So that includes a lot of solar and I know solar is not the cleanest thing out there either, but it is, it, it's a game changer as, as Jemima said, and that I think can dramatically um, improve planetary health as well. So it can improve socioeconomic outcomes and it can improve planetary health. It can improve women's and girls' health uh, through you know, avoidance of, of, of smoke in, in uh, where cooking takes place. So yeah, that, that's one, one solution, one suggestion. There, there are obviously many others out there. Collective action, I think approaches that Wei mentioned, um, as well, strengthening these uh, governance systems across landscapes 
to ensure that biodiversity is retained while we intensify agriculture systems. And of course, sustainable intensification itself, while there are people who uh, do not like this particular approach, um, I think the evidence is quite overwhelming that it is more favorable uh, for planetary health than uh, low input or zero input uh, agriculture systems sim simply in terms of uh, changes in, in deforestation reduction and deforestation. Yeah, so that would be my first quick question. Uh, Thank you, Claudia. Uh, <laughs> Rua, if I can give you opportunity. Sorry, did you want to say something else, Claudia? No. Okay, okay I could, uh, but no. Uh, let's give Rua a chance, yes, and then uh, we've got more time there, I'm sure you can answer. Yeah, questions. I'll just add, as Nicole Claudia said, you pretty much answered the question. I'll just like to highlight that, uh, you know, there will be likely a more important role of the private sector in this context, uh, you know, public kind of investment and, and, and research and innovations uh, to play a role, but the combination of the private uh, public kind of partnership in this context can also play an important role in, in, uh, in addressing this issue. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to take another question because uh, there are quite a few. So uh, uh, I just want to uh, double check that I'm reading the right question. Uh, Vujay Nahari, uh, I'm not going to pronounce your surname and I apologize for that from Madagascar. Is climate change affecting the distribution of biodiversity? Now, um, I want to check. Uh, Jamima, you're also welcome. Uh, but Rua, I think this is more a question for you, uh, if, I'm, if I'm correct. Uh, who's the climate scientist and dealing with biodiversity? Or Jawu, do you want to answer it? Uh, Rua, you want to go? And Wayzak, okay. Uh, Jawu, you want to come in? No, Wayzak, yes, okay. Uh, if I uh, ask a question, just put your hand up uh, as, after I say, then I'll know exactly who wants to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so wait. I'm. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm not an ecologist or climate scientist, but you know, I, I think there's um, pretty strong evidence uh, in the literature that yes, climate change does have a, a pretty um, you know, negative effect on biodiversity impact affecting uh, invasive species, the distribution of um, species, um, and 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 just um, you know in in the agricultural area, um, an example is um, more frequent, more severe pest outbreaks um, because of um, um, the loss of biodiversity. That that's uh, the take from a social scientist. Sure. <laughs> No, that's an excellent take. Um, uh, there's a second question from Gabina Sakibu Husseini from Ghana. What are the best remedies to combat climate change and global warming? I presume that is related to food systems and agriculture. Uh, anybody want to put their hand up for, for answering that question uh, from the team? Uh, Claudia, yes, go for it. Yeah. So clearly not destroying any more tropical forests, I think is the number one um, action that agriculture should very um, actively pursue and I think is you know, increasingly pursuing. Um, but we shouldn't forget that climate change is affecting uh, forests also directly. So, I mean, obviously agriculture has a role to play in retaining forests, but climate change is also uh, adversely affecting the 
the many positive roles that forests can play um, in, in carbon sequestration, et cetera. So that is really number one, do not destroy any further forest. Keep agriculture area on you know, as, as small an area as you can. Um, and then obviously the big, the, the big other elephant maybe in the room is meat production. So I think a lot has been written about that. A lot is already known. We know that even in low income systems, changing livestock feeding practices can do a lot to improve, for example, the milk output per liter. I mean, the emissions per liter of milk output as an example. So there's a whole bunch of, um, of measures that are out there. It doesn't mean that we have to, uh, you know, that everyone has to stop meeting eat, I think, uh, meat uh, or, or consume milk, but I think we have to do it a bit more consciously, being aware where we can make savings and in low and middle income countries improve uh, livestock systems uh, using really proven technologies. And there's also something out there called cultured proteins, so including cultured milk proteins that I think is another game changer that we need to look in um, more closely. Thanks. Sorry, thank you. I've been trying to deal with questions and also find the screen. So uh, I have another question. Uh, sorry, uh, Rue, you wanted to say something? Yes. Sorry. I'll just like to I like the role of uh, biotechnology as well um, in um, in addressing this kind of issue. You know, use of um, say fertilizer types like slow release fertilizers and uh, you know seed varieties that actually um, address some of the challenges uh, without making the situation more complicated uh, and increasing productivity is a challenge that needs to be addressed with this kind of mindset. Thank you. Okay, can I just ask, uh, are there trials being uh, taken forward uh, by IFRI or the other CGR institutes on, on these kinds of issues? Um, trials, well, our, our bio uh, safe, biosafety uh, program, you know, that does address a lot of the issues on the use of the the the, 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 the new biotech, the potential of new biotechnologies to actually address some of these challenges in in, in these developing countries, and uh, and there has been a, a lot of um, issues that then the, the question comes to the issue of the regulations uh, in place that in some of those countries still constitute a challenge uh, for uh, for moving forward with some of those technologies. Um, yeah, so, but that, that's an uh, ongoing, uh, sorry, ongoing. Uh, just a related question because this is very important. Um, mm -hmm. Are there cost barriers at the moment, or does the economics work out better, or are we still a, a, a little bit away from that? I mean, cost barriers in some of those contexts, you know, when, when you talk about the seeds and the adoption of other technologies, there is the issue about the, the ability for farmers to actually um, participate in this market because some of those technologies require, uh, you know, purchase over and over again of the, of the seeds, for example. And, uh, and in some of those systems, that is a challenge. And also the role of the, um, of, of the, the, the different enterprises, um, you know, some of these are involved, uh, the involvement of multinationals, I know the role also for the local research institutes that still has to evolve. In some countries, you know, given their the small, uh, small size, it, uh, it is very hard to actually make all the efforts there. So what, what we have been advocating for is a kind of, um, regional coordination in the, this kind of efforts to, 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 to gain scale in, in the potential benefits uh, of those uh, technologies to be profitable uh, in the medium and the long run. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm gonna move on to the next question. It's from Natasha Gris, Norwich Institute for Sustainable Development. And it's sort of addressed to all the speakers. I suppose we can't go through all the speakers, so maybe we'll take one or two. Uh, could you tell us the most exciting specific example you, gave, you have come across recently of how a transformed approach to food systems can work in practice 
which incorporates climate change better? I suppose we've sort of answered this with Claudia and Rua just earlier. Uh, this might be a value chain, supply chain, innovation, organizational change, and investment change, or broader institutional country level change. Uh, any uh, self-election to answer the question? Uh, Claudia or anybody else? Roy, do you want to answer? I suppose we've answered, wait, yes. Thank you. So one of the projects we're looking at uh, in our new 1CG initiative proposal is um, what's called living lab approaches. So this is a method that turns around the table. So now researchers um, uh, designing or, or promoting our methods, but instead it is a very much co-development, uh, co-design process, uh, working together with stakeholders to find the solution themselves um, and, and the to identify the desired outcome and their collective vision. And the, another key um, idea is to, uh, to, to, to have both technical and social innovations uh, to go hand in hand uh, as a package for uh, effective behavior change. Thank you. Uh, Claudia, did you want to come in quickly or others in the, on the panel? Jemima, yes, please go. I would only add two things there uh, to what Wei has said. One is there's a lot of work going on on, on climate proofing value chains because a lot of the value chains work. Um, there's been a lot of effort to make sure that, that value chains uh, are providing nutritious, healthy food, but not always climate proofing them. So that's a new piece of work that's becoming much more systemic in terms of how we think about value chains and the intersections between value chains, health and, and climate change. Um, the second point I want to make is, as part of the conversations to develop um, an Africa position on, on food systems, we've heard a lot of talk about our indigenous food systems and how to bring back some of those crops that governments have underinvested in that have both a nutrition, um, a nutrition um, advantage, but also have a climate, uh, climate change advantage, either because they are brought tolerant like small millets and sorghums and African leafy vegetables. So I think we're gonna start seeing much more investment um, in, in that within uh, in the region. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question if the panelists don't mind uh, because of shortage of time. Uh, we have a question from uh, Charlotte uh, Heldebrand, uh, or Heberbrand. Uh, this is for all speakers. And where and in what scale have the approaches, solutions in your respective areas already led to concrete and significant impacts? Um, anybody want to respond to that? I have a question that's related to that. Um, uh, the, the issue of climate risk and in integration of climate science in the work you do in terms of food systems uh, approach that you're taking and uh, improving agricultural production, uh, the extent to which this is um, uh, now gaining more traction across uh, not only international uh, agricultural research institutions, but 
private and uh, uh, national level. So, uh, you know, just, just a curiosity around that. Or are we still at the early stages of, of uh, developing this work and it is still a lot to learn and there's still a lot to experiment with? Jaul, yes. Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, the first one on what's already proven to be effective. Um, so it's not exactly climate change, but like throughout COVID crisis, uh, we saw how quickly our food stamps, our food system uh, actors kind of utilized digital technologies, online marketplace, uh, food delivery services uh, to bring uh, this resilience uh, in entire food supply chain. So I think uh, we, we can learn a lot from how uh, how the system adapted to that limited uh, kind of constraint, constraint environment. And I think of, yeah, oftentimes we saw how, how, what we can learn from a COVID crisis, how we can better prepare for the climate change um, kind of impact. Um, yeah, so that's what I was going to just briefly mention, the role of digital technology to improve resilience uh, of the food supply chain. Also related to that, uh, the modif uh, I'm, I'm getting quite excited about the possibility of modifying uh, food supply chain quite uh, uh, real time, almost very uh, in agile way, uh, because a lot of things happening in online marketplace and e-commerce space can be also applied in our food system. For example, we can not consumers and uh, we can change consumer behavior towards more uh, nutritious and healthy diet and uh, in a way reducing uh, carbon footprint, also improving bio, uh, biodiversity and multiple development outcomes that we are looking after. So yeah, there's a lot of things uh, that when we have a lot of digital technology on top of lots of open data sources, uh, we can probably make some sizable changes in, the, in this area too. I think there's a very interesting question from uh, Deborah um, from Kenya around the the fact that it, uh, usually climate policies and climate issues are dealt with by environmental ministries. This is becoming a whole economic issue. So she's asking a question: uh, To what extent, uh, you know, in particular in Kenya, uh, does the agricultural ministries adopt a climate uh, risk lens as part of their strategies for food systems? Uh, support and also for innovation in agriculture and support to, to farmers. Uh, and you want to answer that, uh, Jao, or anybody else? Jemima sits there, so she should answer. <laughs> I, 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 I can try, I can try. Okay. So, um, and, and Deborah is very right that there's been a very sectoral approach uh, to these issues that you will find a Ministry of Agriculture that's dealing with food production, livestock production, uh, a Ministry of Environment dealing with, with, with climate change issues. And these things sometimes don't always come together, and especially in countries where there isn't a multi-sectoral coordination mechanism. But more and more, we are seeing governments actually set up multi-sector coordination mechanisms because of this realization that these things are all interconnected. I think for me, the biggest moment to see this was at the UN Food Systems Summit um, last month when over 150 countries actually came to the summit with their national food systems transformation pathways. And the Kenya one actually had climate and resilience at the center 
of it. So that was actually really good to see because these are plans that they're going to be implementing. These are plans that they're going to be uh, monitoring on a two-year basis. So more and more these issues are coming, um, are coming together. Thank you very much. Uh, anybody in the panel want to also respond to that? I have a, a Ruan, yeah, Ben yeah, I'll just to highlight like, in the following our presentation, the paper we're actually preparing now for the COP, that uh, this issue of the multi-sectoral nature of this issue uh, is, uh, is something that it, it is important to highlight. If you think about the way um, um, R&D investments, for example, have been oriented uh, in, in, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia, have been very much on the production side of the, of the value chain. Uh, but so it's important to, to account that, you know, this is, this is a when you talk about the climate implications, you need to think beyond that. And, uh, and the engagement of stakeholders, the private public kind of a way to look at it, uh, are quite, quite important. So, you know, at the country level, uh, to start with at the country level, um, like Jamal was saying, you know, different ministries, but at the international level as well, when donors engage in this kind of issue, it's important to have these multi-sector, multi-value um, multi, um, chain node kind of, uh, kind of view as well. So this is one thing that we want to really want to highlight that the things have to be transformative in that direction to be able to address uh, climate change issues across the, across the board. Thank you. Uh, there's a question from Mohsin from, uh, uh, from Egypt, uh, and it relates to um, the adaptive practices that can be applied to uh, climate stress, particularly by farmers and how, what are great examples of that. But I think it's also related to a, a sort of a question I have. Uh, have we been able to put some metrics on the uh, impacts of, of extreme weather and climate change on economic value of the agricultural sector and also drop in production? And um, uh, yeah, and the, the extent to which uh, private sector is very involved in R&D, uh, or is this going to be led by the public sector? Uh, and how do we, you know, uh, match and align? So, Claudia, I see you're very excited. So. You have I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just excited because uh, I guess about, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we, we did release a special report for Egypt on the uh, impacts of climate change on the agriculture sector and also on the uh, overall cost of the agriculture and overall economy of Egypt. And I think, uh, I hope I was right, it's about 1.8 billion a year. So the overall cost from higher food prices um to the you know egyptian economy so so the overall cost from uh, lack of adaptation uh to these challenges um so i yeah would like i mean we can send that report um, uh, um, and, and if you can talk to also particularly mohsin's question of how the how egyptian to, yeah oh, exactly yeah yeah so so I mean, egypt and, and many other countries we do need a combination of public and private sectors so we do need um, obviously an enabling environment in the public sector, enough freedom for the private sector to, to act. Um, you know, Egypt is an outlier in Africa in terms of some of the highest, uh, you know, highest yields achieved in an extremely hot and desertic environment, obviously due to these uh, great water resources uh, that Egypt has access to. Um, it's getting hotter, it's getting drier. And I think there obviously needs to be more of a shift and yet more of a shift in some of the crops that are being grown right now and additional investment in heat heat uh, and, and drought tolerance. Um, and, and 
yeah, as I said, some, some additional shift in cropping patterns, additional investment in greenhouses. So yeah, we have uh, proposed the whole range of technologies. Also, of course, improved uh, agricultural water management because water, water availability will get scarcer in these kind of environments as a result um, of climate change and obviously continued um, population growth and urbanization that we see in, in Egypt. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Jemima, you want to talk about it in the general uh, sense of the African continent and what, what you're seeing and the kinds of requests you're getting as IFPRI uh, to deal with uh, some of these challenges? Um, I, I think increasingly we are seeing um, public investments in, in building resilience. So even as we track through um, how many governments are meeting their, their targets, that number is increasing progressively. It fluctuates a lot, of course, depending on what's happening in a country. If a country goes into conflict, those expenditures, of course, <laughs> of course, go down. But generally seeing an upward trend in terms of, uh, of, of investments. But what is also happening is there are a couple of, of countries where the, 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 the private sector is also coming in really, really strongly. I see in Kenya, for example, a project that um, FP is engaged in working with insurance companies to provide index-based uh, crop insurance uh, to smallholder farmers. So we are also seeing countries where private sector is really stepping up in terms of climate, uh, especially climate adaptation. Jao, if I, if I can ask a similar question to you about the relevance of uh, uh, agri-tech digital technologies in uh, shaping and, and enhancing adaptive uh, strategies, what would your view be on that? And where are we at that, uh, particularly with small-scale farmers, livestock farmers, etc.? Right. Uh, a lot of data um, are becoming available, but also to save time, we don't... Uh, keep talking it's fine uh, okay just, sorry. Yeah, yeah. okay so yeah uh, so we, we are at a little bit of kind of uh strange juncture uh, so at the same time we, we have a lot of data available becoming available from remote sensing at uh, the global scale and landscape scale but we, we also don't have uh good enough data and at the uh, at the very timely level and granular level of from smallholder farmers so we are uh, still trying to uh uh, make the gap kind of close, close and smaller and smaller. Uh, a lot of sensor technologies and Internet of Things um, and lots of good ICT communication technologies require, it assumes you have good connectivity, assumes you have good electricity, but that's still missing. So uh, it is true there are some biases in the data and kind of research work we do. So I think that that also needs to be addressed quite urgently. Um, but where it's available, where data is being collected and actively shared, and I think there are a large body of evidence uh, quite uh, pointing to the uh, potential impact of that can be realized uh, using digital technologies. Can I ask you a related question? Because uh, the other two questions we sort of answered, and I'll come back to them, the last two questions. And I also want to ask Wei Zhang uh, on the landscape level, you know, collective action level, how, how we deal with uh, impacts uh, from climate change. Uh, what, what is your take on the, the development on agri-tech and, and are they focused in the right areas or is it very much about the commercial value and income? Uh, should we be do doing more to integrate climate adaptation and resilience to reduce the impact 
you know, uh, if you can speak to that. Yeah. So, yeah. right. Okay. I can speak briefly. So, I think there is a right momentum uh, now because we are in the climate crisis mode. Yeah. As Jemima rightfully said. Uh, so, this, there is an urgency, shared urgency for all of us uh, working in this area. So, yes, I, I think it's, it's, uh, we are quite consistent. Uh, yeah. Quite, uh, uh, conscious about yeah how those technology and agri tech are uh, serving the uh, serving the need of uh, the small small scale producers and small scale farmers. However, I also uh, kind of notice uh, personally also in our team we are uh, seeing it every time. Uh, so it's it's not easy uh, to convince private sector and multilateral organization to uh, really uh, targeting their investment, their technology for smallholder farmers only. So it, it should be kind of shared responsibility. There should be some uh, more high level uh, enabling environment to make that happen because smallholder farmers carries uh, its own, just by the nature of their way of farming, uh, higher risk, a uh, lower uh, ROI, uh, uh, return on investment so yeah, it small there is a, a little reluctance from private sector just focusing on smallholder farmers and the livelihood of the small-scale production system so yeah this, this this should be considered as a nationwide or economy-wide issue that everyone uh, has a stake in it and working together to serve not just uh, relying on specific sector to go out and address uh, then I will yeah, hand over to you. Thank you. Uh, Wei, uh, Wei Zhang, uh, if you can also just talk about it, because there's a big uh, important question uh, that's been uh, raised just now about uh, the fact that uh, it seems like the panelists are not taking into account uh, issues of poverty and, and, and how that is integrated. And I know IFRI well, because I know that's central to your, to your work, but it might, may not have come out in, in the presentation. So just to... Uh, talk about it because when you talk about uh, particularly with property rights and uh, uh, questions of uh, ownership, uh, uh, the dimension of uh, land rights, property rights, all of those issues are, are fundamental in uh, affecting the, the kind of distributive uh, aspects of, of uh, the agricultural production and uh, how ownership patterns, whether it's made by men or women, affect uh, benefits from that production. So maybe just to talk about a little bit about that, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, thank you. So yes, um, the, there, there is huge gender gap in, in property rights and land rights. There is, um, you know, marginalized groups are also, also face um, uh, uh, you know, uh, less access. So so yeah, on the one hand, it reduces their ability to benefit from uh, climate action investments such as PS, also, um, you know, access to uh, uh, support, technical support uh, is also uh, affected. But um, another relevant point is the resilience, which is a key goal of stakeholders in uh, sharing a landscape, right? Um, on the one hand, they need policy support, um, these enabling conditions, but also local level collective action is very crucial. For example, um, in the form of safety net as an example of collective action to, health, to help uh, households cope with climate change shocks, to have access to support and assistance to be able to rebound uh, rather than falling uh, back into poverty and food insecurity. Uh, 
uh, I, I had the pleasure of reading uh, Thomas Jane's papers on you know this uh, sustainability pyramid that he that he talked about and one of the things that he mentioned there was the issue of the poverty trap so if you already have a constrained agricultural production system you've got climate risk uh, the chances of uh, increasing the poverty trap uh, is, is quite significant. So the one way to deal with climate risk has to be seen as in a holistic way. You have to deal with property rights, you have to deal with market issues, you have to deal with uh, in, uh, levels of income generation and income support that encourages the farmer to en enhance uh, sustainability. Uh, and in that way, uh, as you said, we have the ability to rebound. Uh, I, I presume that that's sort of central to all the work you're doing whether we talk about technology, R&D, et cetera. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, the point that has been made is that um, in certain countries, uh, it could come across that this work is very environmentally focused. It's about uh, changing human behavior, but not really addressing the bigger issue of uh, the uh, general resilience of community, the country, and the ability to get out of the poverty trap. So, uh, you want to respond to that quickly? I know we've got like three minutes left and we have to close off. So. Maybe. Claudia, yes. Yeah, you want to I mean, say something? Yeah. yeah, I guess just one intervention where I think IFPRI has been doing a lot of impact assessments and a lot of support are social protection programs. Um, and those include food for work programs or direct payment transfers to. Um, the poorest women and men farmers, and a lot of a lot of these programs are linked with land restoration. So you know some of the areas of ways involved in they're also involved in um, the generation of uh, or the rehabilitation of irrigation systems. So you know that links to other work that we do. And so what we're trying to do there is to actually assess to what extent uh, such programs not only reduce direct vulnerability to like weather shocks, climate extreme events. And there's already evidence uh, from IFPRI that has shown that those programs are extremely effective to support the poorest farmers to rebound from adverse uh, weather events in Ethiopia. I think you probably all know that program and maybe some of the research, but also we, we are trying to assess to what extent the food for work interventions, you know, such as uh, terracing, um, ex-closures, um, water system rehabilitation, to what extent they also further uh, improve climate resilience actually and, and improve nutrition security. And so, yes, I mean, again, you know, given, given the right institutions, the right local conditions, the right targeting, I mean, those programs can be extremely effective, um, but, you know, they're not, uh, they cost, they're, they're, they're not at zero cost. So I think we are, you know, have been doing a lot of research and we continue to do more research in terms of which of these many interventions that are out there and these, you know, biotech and, and, and ag technologies are actually increasingly affordable, you know, for poor farmers. Some larger technologies like solar pumps still, still more expensive. But so we are looking at which intervention, which institutions are pro-poor and which ones are not. And as Chavu said, you know, most private sector investors, they want to target anyone who can afford or anyone who, you know, who can use this technology. They are not as pro-poor and that's why we need the government and we need um, 
we need an, the enabling environment to directly target to the poorest because they will otherwise really be left out um, of, of climate resilience strategies. There's a big risk. I mean, we've seen it COVID-19, the digital tools are have been crucial, but they certainly uh, millions, billions, I mean, billions, maybe. Yeah, I, I'd say at least a billion people has been entirely left out because they cannot access um, these technologies. So yeah, and we have to make it. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, we have come to an end. Uh, and so I just wanted to thank the panel. Really um, a brilliant showcasing of your expertise and your knowledge. Uh, I will encourage people to certainly, uh, you know, um, get access to a lot of your findings and your work and certainly personally to yourself. Uh, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I just want to say a last uh, for the audience just to mention that, um, uh, you know, there's an invitation to join IFPRI on the 28th of October at 10 a.m. I presume it's U.S. time uh, for the 31st annual Foreman Memorial Lecture to be delivered by Henrietta Four, exact Executive Director of UNICEF. Uh, once again, I really uh, want to uh, say that I had a real pleasure being here and to really enjoy the presentations and the participation of the audience. So thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. All the best to all of you. Thank you.